come and speak and say, what would you like to talk about? And please give us a title. So I just sort of, that popped into my mind. And then it became a challenge to produce a talk um, on this subject. But it is true that suffering is uh, the reason why many of us practice. Uh, we want to be free, maybe in some vague way, not necessarily that we perceive ourselves as being completely filled with suffering, but sometimes I think the yearning for understanding or um, whatever it is, however it is that one expresses to oneself the, the reason to meditate or what, you know, to be sort of on a path or on a search or whatever, to have the spiritual orientation is because of certain kind of limitations of the world and what could be beyond those limitations is probably one of the softest way of, ways of saying it. But sometimes it is true that we feel oppressed in our minds or in our lives in some way or other and that, that uh, we come here looking for solutions. Um, you could say that suffering is like the little grit that leads to a pearl. That's one of the expressions of why suffering can be something actually beneficial. Um, okay. Mostly, um, our, I would say that um, in the title there's a kind of provocative element because suffering is uh, undesirable. It's not something that anybody wants to experience. And in saying that suffering is your friend, I'm sort of more thinking that suffering can become your friend and hardly uh, recommending that suffering is something to wallow in, embrace, and enhance in one's life. Um, so it's not sort of a rational title. It, I put that sort of twist in it to, to peak and provoke um, and also to give the sense of possibility for what the Dharma view might be. And in a, some kind of subtle way to emphasize that we do um, have a choice about how we experience our lives, although many times what suffering consists of is not really recognizing that you have a choice and kind of feeling stuck with something. Well, to know and understand and open to and accept and recognize suffering as it is, is the beginning of the Buddhist path, and it's also the end. One of my um, deepest teachers, Sayada Upandita, uh, recently wrote a poem which was rather long. It kind of went through various things in his way that he covers all bases. But at the end, he said, while seeing suffering accomplished is correct knowledge of all the truths. So that in seeing suffering for what it really is, now, and that's very deep for what it really is. Um, all truths are known, including you know, the truth of freedom or liberation, which is the fourth of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, suffering being the first. At one point he said, I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. You get there a hint of his practical and pragmatic approach, a sort of experiential here and now. What is sort of the human problem and what would be a solution? And he came up with one. And it's not that he said, I teach, he actually said, I teach one thing, only suffering and the end of suffering. He didn't just say, I teach suffering. He actually would, and you might say he teaches two things. But if you sort of spread it out more, the very common way of talking about the Buddhist path is suffering, its cause, the fact that it can come to an end and the way or the means to be practiced uh, to reduce and eliminate uh, this problem. So I guess in a way we have to kind of define it too, 
to, so to say, what exactly is it? And I think for each person, the way that you think about it or experience it would be different. Um, but this afternoon uh, with a friend of mine, we were talking about this and we thought like one of the, th- without sort of throwing out all the texts and scriptures, what would it be? And um, certainly one of the major things in suffering is when you really turn away from your experience and you say um, no, like something comes up and you say, I'm, I don't like this, I can't take this, I don't want this. Um, this doesn't fit uh, with me or what I want or what I like. Um, when they began building, you know, a very large structure immediately next to my house and every morning um, machinery was starting to go off at seven in the morning <laughs> and the things turned out to be very ugly and crowded and, you know, four times as much as should be built on one lot and things like that, you know, that there was definitely resistance um, in my mind and it wasn't it wasn't something that I could have foreseen it just came I had no control over it I couldn't stop it you know there were laws and neighborhood meetings and you know as of by right they were allowed to do this and they did it so there it is and I actually find that um, although I don't necessarily really like it I can live with it but there have there were times in the process when I really felt that um, this had you know, moments at least when it had ruined my life <laughs> and, and we were going to need to move. Um, and also, why was I so intolerant? And these were th- people who needed housing and here they are. And, you know, I mean, um, so the thought arises that this is really wrong and you believe it and you kind of buy into it. Um, something in your experience really becomes your enemy Um, You sort of forget that you have any choice points, and it gets very solid and very large. And a lot of what happens in suffering is that you don't ever, you don't sort of, you lose the realization that you can kind of step off of this, that, you know, the machinery wasn't going on all day long, or, you know, there were sort of benefits mixed in with these houses, and I was going to be able to live with them, um, all of those things. It was um, just mentally painful. So when these things move into our lives and we separate ourselves mentally and we try to and we can't necessarily get away. There are other ways that suffering um, can come up when basically some unpleasant feeling and then we react, some kind of uh, reactivity arises. It might lead to a perception of something or someone that we then repeat over and over. Uh, every time we have this, we see this experience coming from afar, we already know where it's going to go, and um, we hate all people who do X, um, things like that. And this suffering is something that um, occurs really in the mind. It's not in the world. I mean, the you know, the houses being built next door have no nervous system and no beliefs about themselves. They were kind of going up, that's all. So it was really in me. I would call it maybe experience plus something extra. Um, sometimes it might be to, like, grasp onto something and say that, like, this is the greatest, this is the best. You know, I'm so great. Um, and the solidification in that of something which will eventually either separate you from other people or separate you from other experiences or which will probably eventually be lost or change. Um, Death finds the rich 
uh, person on the island that they've bought to get away from all their problems, you know, when or on that island maybe they don't have a doctor or whatever it is. You know, there is there really isn't anywhere that you can go to get away from the ups and downs and the unpredictability of life. Another way of seeing uh, the location of suffering would also be um, in the way that dogs don't worry about whether or not they're going to die or they don't know, they, they don't have extra trouble about the diseases that they have because they can't really think about them. Um, you know, or, you know, to some extent, they do have an imagination of good and bad things that are going to happen. You know, obviously, when you're cooking and they see the meat on the counter, they imagine they're going to get some and things like this. But um, they, there is a way in which their capacity to really, like, ruin their own lives by imagining things <laughs> is smaller. <laughs> as long as their bowl is there and, you know, the, the ball is there. Um, a friend of mine has a cat who's very sick and in liver failure, and there was a point of deciding like whether it should have you know more surgery to extend its life and she thought well it's not it's happy now, and when it dies it's going to die quickly it's not really worrying about the fact that it's going to die, and it would be so frightened to go to the hospital and to be under the knife and to have the whole experience of the surgery that prolonging its life was really f- sort of for me, not for the cat, like just let the cat go the way it's going to go and you know, it doesn't imagine its life being any longer or shorter than the life is actually going to be. Um, the Buddha's teaching on this um, was very, very much focused. He was once, a lot of his suttas consist of um, conversations that he had with various people who would come up to him and present him with various topics. And one of them, uh, one time, some guy came up to him who said, well, uh, something about how teachers should be respected. And the Buddha said, well, why am I respected? And the guy said, well, because you don't eat very much and you, you're a recluse and you, your, your needs are modest and you wear simple clothes and stuff. And the Buddha sort of went through all those points and said, well, you know, there are other people who eat less than me. Sometimes I actually do dress nicely and people live far in the forest and they're very ascetic compared to me. Like I lead a balanced life and I'm not such a recluse. I spend all this time like talking to people and having disciples and people are around me all the time. I'm not, you know, I, if, you, if those are your points, those might not be the points that are very profound to me. They're outward things. So he said, but for me, what I think is important, um, when my disciples have met with suffering, They've become victims of suffering and prey to suffering. They come to me and I satisfy their minds. And he went through other points, like these are the things that I know how to explain, these are the things I know how to teach. And then at the end he said, um, and here and now um, I can teach someone to abide in the deliverance of mind so that they see it as clearly as if you imagine a mountain lake in the hollow of the mountains and these people can see uh, with wisdom clearly the nature of life and their deliverance, their own deliverance of wisdom here and now, just as you can see all the pebbles at the bottom of that lake and all the fish that swim in it and all the plants that grow there. So sort of passed on over the centuries, I often find that his words are very vivid and very beautiful, uh, that people recognize within themselves some real clarity of mind and they see the things in their mind as parts of nature without kind of getting into a fight with those things, those natural things. And in inviting all of us to befriend each one our suffering just a little more, it's a way of also inviting us to begin to see how things are within nature. 
and to look into the nature of our life and not feel as much like a victim of these experiences when they come. Again, when seeing suffering as it is, the knowledge of all truths is accomplished. And a big part of this meditation practice, the vipassana practice, is really developing the skill to be with things as they are in our lives and to see things as they are. Um, There's a long word um, in Pali about this. It's called uh, yata bhuta dasana jnana. It's the knowledge... um, and vision of being able to see things as they really are. <coughs> What's interesting in this is that um, when you remove sort of the distortions that mind, that your sort of mind tends to add, that ignorance tends to add to your outer experience in seeing things as they really are, they open up in a completely different way than when you're kind of separating yourself and not examining and contemplating both sort of from the witness position and with an open heart and mind looking into life. So in this tradition, it's encouraged uh, to kind of examine and uh, contemplate with the heart and mind what is it to traverse this human realm and this human life. And there's sort of teaching saying, like, we, well, we might not really like to look at this, but every single one of us is going to die. Like, we don't really think about that every day, and we, there's something in our minds that doesn't believe it. But birth, e- being born equals dying. Every body will die. And if you think of it kind of in a panoramic, sort of take it out of your own sort of little perspective, you just look at the idea of anybody's life, all beings, that everyone has challenges and everyone has issues, and whether you're a cat or a dog or a person or everyone in this room, probably we all have things that we work with that we'd rather not have, that we want to get, that we don't have, that we're hoping uh, will either come to us or will go away, Um, things we're really confused about, you know... (laughs) That's the nature of life and of being a person, and... um, Part of the beauty of that is when you think of all of us being in this kettle of fish together and you kind of take away this kind of funny barrier that's around yourself, it makes a really soft and sweet feeling to think of all of us here. And it gives a perspective on one's own struggles a little bit, like, well, you know, okay, so that's how it is, and maybe not everything is going to be resolved on the day that I die. So what does that mean about how I'm going to live now? How will I live with my issues now? Like, I've often felt that you kind of resolve one thing and then you get to the layer of your next sort of theme for the next five years. Well, you finally don't work with this. Well, then there's something else, you know, or even another version of the same thing. So this feeling that, um, you know, we have to not befriend our suffering and just that we're going to instantly get rid of it, the pain that is caused by that, um, is extra, if you look at it. We're all living with this unpredictable, kind of unstable, coming and going life. The main issue with the experience of suffering that makes suffering worse is the way that we want to get away from it. Um, Now, of course, in the beginning I said that it's the cause for seeking a solution, right? And you do seek a normal solution for something like, you know, 
take your finger out of the fire and try to figure out the best way to go about something. Recognize that maybe with all your best intentions, you may not even find the best way. Um, you know, do what you can and then sort of let go. But there's this other extreme kind of tendency, which is, um, or it's an underlying kind of unexamined thing, which is called vibhava tanha, which sort of means the thirst for moving your house, the wish to get away, like if only I lived, <laughs> I don't know, I, I've gone through this one. Like when you pass beautiful houses, if only I lived here, or like that house is really cute, I could, you know, I could sort of like that one, and my house is just, it's so familiar and all its problems, and you know, well, you know, but every house that you move into would be um, problematic in its own way. It's encouraged to reflect on what's called sort of the defects of samsara until you realize that there's really nowhere to escape to, that you, we are working within a certain set of limitations, and to allow the mind to kind of recognize that and settle into it, rather than this sort of trying to change everything or to also fly into a reactive pattern any time that suffering comes up. I'll be talking a little bit more about that later. So from the Dharma perspective, there's some acceptance that satisfaction and joy um, are fleeting and transient. That may be part of their beauty, but they also pass away. They're not permanent. Nor is suffering permanent either, which is important to know. But that this part of us that is waiting inside till we become more wealthy or more knowledgeable or we have more friends or we finally bend to the last place that we wanted to travel to, um, that that isn't going to be when we're going to become happy. (laughs) Part of us is always waiting sort of for the right outer circumstance. And that's part, you know, not really seeing the limitations of this. Like, I can still find in my mind the belief that, like, well, you know, (laughs) but, but. And we're so kind of used to the limitations of our world, I think that we don't really see them, like, um, often. Like, we don't see very clearly what a drag it is that we have to walk everywhere on these little bone things, you know. (laughs) The bony pegs or the stilts, you know. (laughs) After about 60 years, you need hip surgery and knee surgery because they start to wear out. Um, You know, we have to eat and drink at regular intervals, and you can't always get the food you want. It turns into shit. It has to come out. You know, that you have to drink this water, which is not always pure. Um, Everything is inconvenient, basically. I mean, (laughs) pretty much. And when it's summer, you're too hot. When it's winter, you're too, you wish that it would be winter. In the winter, you're like, oh, God, when is summer coming? You know, then you sweat and you have to have air conditioning, pay the bill. I mean, <laughs> hear the noise. When you read the descriptions of some of the divine realms, it's like, well, no one needs to eat, but food is there for the pleasure of just the experience of eating, and it's food beyond what we could ever imagine. Well, it's just trying to, you know, those are other kind of, ideas about what life might be. Or then think about our mind, you know, how kind of inconstant and scattered it is and how vulnerable we are. Um, For me, like, I think one of the issues that I suffer with the most is every day trying to get control over a single day, you know, and all the things that I think, you know, I feel somehow I should be doing all these things every day. And some of them are things that, you know, are supposed to 
make me feel better and enhance my life like exercise or you know exercise meditate walk the dog cook nice food blah 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 you know by the time you're finished taking care of yourself the day is over and you haven't done anything (laughs) so lately um you know after I you know I was kind of struggling with all this for years and trying to you know kind of pack everything into sort of a box and have it work and you know it would happen one day out of every 15 days or something and oh man I finally you know I got it to lay down flat today wow you know but um now it's sort of a day is just a day. Whatever I did that day, whatever I can accomplish, you know, I'll start, I'll try. And then, like, because things constantly come up and sweep you away, you know. I remember when I was actually in, um, meditating in Burma, um, how, you know, it was supposed to be this very strict place, but every day a visa problem or a hemorrhoid or, you know, you'd be called in to see, watch the monks do something. And, you know, everything was an interruption. <laughs> So anyway, within this world of ordinary perceptions, it's like there is a way that it's kind of permeated by either problems or the possibility of problems. Like you may have phases in your life when you feel like you don't have problems, but just wait a little bit and some will come. (laughs) And it's also not to say that there isn't kind of happiness or relatively better circumstances, but... um, you know, or things that we might need to do to get out of situations that are difficult or abusive and decisions that we have to make kind of within that realm. So I just want to take care of all that and say that that's, those human things are important. It's not about getting away or getting out of sort of having to live within what this life is and these parameters. That's actually part of the important thing is to relate directly to your life in a very ordinary way. And still, um, kind of with take it, taking it with a grain of salt. Patrul Rinpoche said, um, if all you own is a bag of tea, you can be sure you'll have a tea bag's worth of trouble. (laughs) 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 So for each person to analyze this in a sort of directed way and also, you know, look around in the world and see if there is anywhere that's exempt. Um, And also looking around in the world and seeing, you know, in broad brush strokes, what are the causes of some of the trouble in the world? And I think a lot of it you can start to see are in, people's minds and sort of rejection and greed and separation and chaos and the unwillingness to let certain people in or out uh, of countries or of life or whatever those things are. I'm talking a little bit about the reflective level. And the next point is uh, once you've kind of accepted it and you've, you've kind of dealt a little bit with that deep vibhavatana, the thing like we're going to go live in some other world next week, Um, then to start to feel and see your own experience directly. Um, Because it's only with seeing clearly that letting go starts to become um, automatic. And I'm not exactly always talking about getting rid of things, but it is true that sometimes you realize, well, actually, you know, my experience of, you know, going to so-and-so's house is that I'm really never happy there. Like, I don't like it. I, I don't really need to keep going there or something like that. Um, when you experience something, you realize that maybe you can set it aside or you don't need it. But there's an, So that sort of renunciation or easing into having more space in your life rather than having certain things is very nice. But the other piece is also kind of letting go into the experience that you're actually having, even if you don't necessarily like it or you don't necessarily want to be having the experience. There's a kind of softening in that, and I think that... Um, 
probably everyone has experienced it. Like maybe a time when you might have felt really lonely and what you really want is for someone to kind of come and be with you or some particular person. And um, if you can find the way of kind of going into that experience of loneliness yourself and kind of being with the experience, it opens into something that you're kind of accompanying and supporting yourself, even if um, it's not that you can find someone to come over. There's a poem by Hafiz where he says, um, this is really beautiful, something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender. So that I think that when we can face sort of this, uh, or the, you know, whatever it is, the inner lack or the emptiness or the things that we never got or the things that we don't have or the things that we don't want, we find that we are actually more able to be with ourselves than we believed. And in this kind of, um, say, living of today as today, whatever our day may be, we really take refuge in the truth in a very profound way, which is kind of what the Dharma is about. And it kind of is a choice, and it is a decision that we make. And part of what's really important about having the spiritual perspective is getting the permission and the indication that living in your own experience is okay, and that it is a way, and that it does become more and more profound, and you see and discern much more interesting and liberating details when you inhabit your life moment to moment and day to day in this way without creating more and more separation. And our very intricate minds are also a part of it. I think that when we talk about sort of liberation from suffering, one of the first things I think of is like, I want to cut off my emotions. And your imagination is kind of maybe just is only going to lead you in crazy places. Anyone who's been uh, in a long-time Vipassana practice may also recognize this tendency, just go back to the breath, you know, drop all that stuff. And um, It's a long-standing tendency that is also something uh, deeply ingrained, how inconvenient our emotions often are. And to sort of approach this piece of what, you know, sort of the location, what our minds are, what our imagination is, some of the pain in our minds, I want to talk about, I am taking an emergency medicine course where um, in order to learn about all the stuff you do, we see a lot of slides of like very, very grisly things. You know, here is an amputation and they showed us two legs that without any body attached to them, they say, well, now this you're supposed to put in a plastic bag and then put it on ice, but don't put it directly on the ice because the water will affect the tissue. And we're like, oh, you know, or, um, you know, actual, someone's actual legs. <laughs> you know, they say, well, this person was probably hit very hard by a car. It looks like it's about bumper height. Blah. Um, or uh, the other thing was a long video about crash dummies and watching everything that happens in a crash, you know, and then saying like, and, and accompanied with the sound effects of the brakes and the, and then it's, you know, you see the crash dummy, the crash dummies aren't experiencing anything, but the class is like, oh God, you know, laughing, you know, here's this person like going out through the air and then they say, now here's the fractured pelvis, here's what happens to the chest, the sternum, the wrist, the forehead, showing a pair of glasses like embedded in a windshield. I mean, it gives me goosebumps even to describe it. And the class is groaning. Now, what are we experiencing? The film is not experiencing any pain. The crash dummies in particular aren't, are crash dummies because they don't experience pain. But what is happening in our imagination at this time? Like we're suffering out of compassion in a sense or just 
partly the recognition that this is out there, something that we don't really want to think about or experience normally, you know, what, what it is, why, you, why do you call the ambulance, you know? And we're also imagining it partly as if it were us, but also imagining what has happened to the people who are in these slides. And um, I think there's something very beautiful about this capacity to feel and imagine the suffering of someone else. Um, it's the word compassion means feeling with, to be able to kind of feel with someone. And it's also too bad that our capacity for this is kind of limited, that we don't know each other's experience and that people don't know our experience. I mean, life is very strange when you think about it. Why are we each inside our own experience? And, you know, there's a lot of similarity and yet there's a lot of kind of privacy. And is the privacy of our minds a good thing or a bad thing? You know, I think it's probably both. But it's fundamental to being a human being that we have this imaginative, vulnerable, complex mind. So that part of, you know, not turning away from the existence of suffering is wear your seatbelt. And maybe all those seatbelt designers or the people that are trying to make us safer are very compassionate people. I'm not saying that, you know, making suffering your friend is just say like, oh, you know, like like one person said in the class, well, I'm not going to wear my seatbelt. I want to die right away. I want to go out that windshield. I want to just, you know, like that. Well, you don't know where you'll end up if, but. So the suffering part that is in our minds, I mean, there's a body, there's nerve endings, there's definitely pain And the experience of extreme pain is something when you try to think about it in a Dharma talk, the mind becomes like a lawyer. It's like, well, how are you going to deal with that in a Buddhist perspective? It's like, well, (laughs) it's too, it's a little theoretical for us in this room. I think that whatever experience of pain that we've each had, we are with it or we've been with it or we haven't been with it in whatever way we've been able to or unable to. Um... And it's really about being in the continuity of one's own sort of experience with compassion while, you know, while imagining somewhat what does happen for others. So looking into and examining the nature of our experience when we're suffering, when we're not, um, when we are perhaps emotionally triggered and more confusion comes in than we're used to. And we do, all of us have those blind spots and those crazy things and you know, ways that we make the people around us suffer and ourselves, you know, to be able to befriend that as well and start to take it with some curiosity and some compassion and some understanding that we're also not alone in that. You know, we may feel very ashamed of certain reactive patterns uh, that we have, but everyone who has a mind has these tendencies and there are you know very few people I know who are completely cleansed of everything I do see growth in myself and other people and much of it comes through the practice of meditation and kind of being able to see through it and kind of say like everyone has it it comes and goes it's not as much as you know it doesn't it's not as solid as what we think how can we be with this truth about ourselves with forgiveness with patience with awareness My grandmother, who whenever she misplaced something, which was frequent because she started to get dotty, she knew that someone stole it, you know, and it was either, there were the white slavers next door, you know, I mean, and I've actually identified a little bit of that myself. Like, I I put my wallet in another part of the car, I hide it under a plastic bag because I'm getting, I'm going out to get something and I come back, it's not in my purse, (gasps) someone stole it. 
And then it's like, oh, no, 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 I put it over there, you know. You can really start to um, see yourself in these ways. And you kind of, you know, it's a nice thing about getting a little bit older because you kind of have been through these things a few times and you're like, oh, here I go, <laughs> you know. Like, see yourself a little bit and laugh. So this whole um, meditation practice here it has a wonderful design that can kind of really help us slow down the reactive um, patterns that we have. To sort of even just sit with ourselves for 45 minutes without moving is already kind of an achievement. It's not necessarily so comfortable or so great, you know, like you're not like instantly in bliss with a halo going out um, as you might like to be. And a lot of times what happens is when you sit here, what you find is not what you want, <laughs> wandering mind, you know, like, wow, how many breaths did I notice in that whole sitting for, you know, something like that. (laughs) But the whole thing about just even sitting in one place and not getting up and leaving and not going for the water and not, like, going to your email or whatever you would do if you were at home, the peer pressure of being here and just going through the experience of the irritation that would make you leave, I think that is beginning to be something really big, to decondition the stimulus that keeps us always going away and looking for something that's going to make us gratified. It's it's a big thing. And within the Buddhist separation, the way they train, it's sort of the morality side, which is kind of like trying to get a little bit of a handle on being less harmful to yourself and other people, either killing or lying or lots of things with speech, things we work with here at CIMC. It's kind of like when you just take the vow that you're not going to do this thing, whatever it is, then you have all the feelings that are associated with why you used to do it. You know, the inclina- the subtle inclination to kind of get into a little gossip with someone or what it feels like when you don't have your chocolate chip cookie at four in the afternoon. You know, <laughs> you know the, the, the thing that, you know, you have that wanting that used to seem to be filled by the cookie instead of the cookie. And um, so you start to experience your mind. And it's really important to experience and to be able to tolerate your mind. So you take away this kind of little acting out in your behavior and you're stuck with your mind. And it's not always that easy, which is why it's very hard to break our habits because it's, you know, to sort of tolerate what you get in the absence of the soothing practice is big. So then the next level is to sort of train the mind and to start to put the mind where you want it to be, to put it on the breath or something it's not going to get in a fight with. Um, and to allow it to feel the feeling and to focus on what's present so that you're experiencing it. And the wonder of doing this type of practice is that just by being with and tolerating your experience, with a little bit of focus, you begin to calm and settle down. You begin to sort of see through it. You have the chance to see that this feeling of craving for the cookie, you know, an hour later you've gone through it and it's not there. And then suddenly you're like, oh, what? It went away? Ah, back again. You know, but you can see it come to an end and you can see that it releases itself by itself and eventually, like with sort of training and patience, the desire, can, the deep craving can eventually disappear and be replaced by peace or a good habit or whatever it is. I mean, anyone who's struggled with sort of trying to change a habit may know um, how it feels with success. It's kind of, um, it's kind of you, know, you know, it might come back later when you're stressed out, you know, in two years or something like that, but... It's really wonderful to be freed sometimes from these patterns, and the work that it takes is very noble. And it leads very naturally, sort of I'm trying to build a progression, to the arising of wisdom, to seeing through and letting go. 
the capacity to sort of experience your experience, you begin to see kind of the nature of experience and the stillness that we've been developing since the beginning of sitting and, and looking and seeing into the mind starts to become stronger. So there's times when you can sit through something that's uncomfortable and it really does seem like there's a movie going on in your head when you're starting to play out the scenarios of disasters that are going on in the future. Like you feel them. I mean, there's feelings associated with it, but it isn't real that you have to go there to the final disaster that's going to happen if this keeps going. And in coming into the moment, you also sometimes realize all the things that you're carrying from the past. And it's like, it's not always necessary to have sort of the last situation haunt you through the next three weeks. It's like, now we're in this room, okay? Now we're not in that room. Uh, We're not in yesterday. And that problem that was happening yesterday, it may still be ongoing, but it doesn't have to fill and taint my experience now. And this becomes a very sort of pleasant and liberating way to live, where you actually can be with the person who's in front of you and you're not with the person that you were with an hour ago. And there's just real beauty in being able to be present with circumstances as they are. This talk is about twice as long as it needs to be. So with this, we start to learn how to face more what we're afraid of and to walk toward and to walk into situations And sometimes we can start to see the fear as not so necessary. Um, To see our turning away from the rawness of pain of our own and someone else's, like maybe, you know, people who don't know how to cry or people who can't be with other people when other people are nerve-wracked. The more we can kind of be with things that are difficult, the more open our lives become. As we open the heart more, and I'm skipping, so as we open the heart more and more, we can find kind of the interest in this openness and find that we're not as defined by the pain or by a situation or by our suffering. But it's true that um, actually sort of hearing this can seem a little bit scary, like you're going to sink under the surface of something and drown. Um, but it's not actually like that. I mean, you can make a choice sometimes if something is too much to not have to experience it. You can try to distract yourself or go to a movie. Those are other skillful choices that sometimes need to be made that if you do find yourself with that kind of stuck and wallowing and can't get away from it feeling, then it's very wise to seek distraction rather than sort of going deeper and deeper and sort of getting yourself all worn out. Um, It's a very sort of wise type of balance that we need to develop here. Eventually, suffering can become a kind of signal to turn toward your experience. It becomes a type of ally to you. Like you see something, this confusion that I've, I've talked about working with my schedule during the day, and that when I start to feel this kind of scattered, rattled, anxious feeling, I, now I say, okay, now this is when I'm supposed to say, today is just today. You know, what happens today is you know, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, and sufficient unto the moment is the moment. So that it's actually become a way that I've, that, uh, and without me sort of saying that I, that I did this on purpose, it started to happen like that. And it's really a doorway for some peace to come into my life. And I appreciate it because of the effort that I had to put in for so long to kind of try to find how was I going to do this. I mean, I've been to 
you know, what do you call it, uh, coaches and, you know, I've had a little schedule book where I pasted things in if I got things done. And, you know, I mean, I, I've tried a lot of different methods, but this one of just sort of letting go has been really the best because it's true and because it's real. And it has been a way that I've learned to sort of turn the mind away from falling into its habitual patterns that I, you know, I'm not okay unless I've done all these things. And so it's kind of been a way of looking at, you know, that was my melodrama that I was living in. Um, it's humbling now when it recurs, but I also sort of feel like, well, you know, it's not my fault. I didn't, I didn't install whatever, like, funny little program this is. Um, <laughs> and I can't necessarily just get rid of it by wishing it away, but it's there. Um, so there's a sort of feeling that there's a little bit less tightness, a little bit less grasping at, like, wishing that I were different kind of thing or that it's not okay to have all these things, a little bit more panoramic, a little less frightened, and a little is really a lot, I would say, in, for most of these things. So in this movement of turning toward, it's not as if you really need to add something extra to what you're experiencing. It's really looking into um, exactly what's here, seeing the world as the world and the mind as the mind. And this is sort of the natural step toward the unconditioned and unconditional happiness uh, of just releasing into what's real, not replacing one experience with another. In this, we're coming close to the characteristic of freedom or of Nibbana, because Nibbana itself, meaning uh, the cessation of craving or non-craving, meaning not wanting things to be some other way, is that it doesn't manifest, it's not a thing. It's something that um, just kind of isn't. It exists without showing up. And sort of if we keep thinking that our liberation is gonna be a thing or a state or a place or something that we get to outside what we're experiencing, that's where we won't find it. Because in a way you can, part of what makes suffering so difficult is you can't necessarily replace the experience that you're having now with another one. I mean, you can have a certain amount of influence over it, but you can't just sort of take it and put it aside and kind of get something else. I mean, that um, doesn't necessarily work. So the moment of freedom doesn't depend on whether you're having a good experience or a bad experience. It depends on kind of the quality of mind. Of You have to be sort of receptive and looking in the right direction. A certain amount of calmness has to be there. And then the capacity to look or to see. And that capacity to look or see is also something that is natural within us. It's part of what enlivens our experience itself. To say that our experience is very much alive and it's self-illumined from within like the flame of a candle. The more we're involved in sort of going where our mind tells us and looking where we think we should be looking, we don't see the quality of experience that is so complete and so natural and so spontaneous and so there and just going on without anyone's interference and without anyone's need to work at it. Um, the fact that we're here conscious, awake, alive, and sentient is really quite amazing and none of us has done anything to cause this and none of us has to do anything to really cultivate it further it's more you know we do have the capacity to examine it and to enhance kind of this cognizant wakeful quality of our awareness but um but it also kind of goes on by itself which is great so taking the flavor of that 
and kind of the amazingness of that and imagining where it might lead within this kind of relaxing into seeing and just even seeing the seeing. So I'll finish with a quote from a um, Tibetan yogi who spent all his life in a cave. He said, accustomed long to meditating on what is unborn, what is indestructible, and what is unchanging, I've forgotten all definitions of this or that particular goal. So in saying that not to go anywhere and not to set up a target, but really to be here without an agenda for how it should be, that that is a very um, beautiful beginning and ending of what our practice could be. All right. Thank you for listening, and thank you all for coming. I wanted to say that in the beginning, but I kind of forgot. Um, Let's sit for a minute, and then we'll have the break, and then we'll have a discussion. There was actually something in the part that I skipped of the talk that I thought I think is very important, so I'm going to continue to belabor you with (laughs) the talk. But that um, there's one, there's the trans, there's the uh, sequence of conditioned uh, co-arising that some of you may have heard of that cause and effect. The cause and effect of ordinary um, suffering perception is begins with ignorance and kind of keeps going. But the cause and effect of transcendence begins with suffering, moves through recognition of suffering through faith to joy to liberation. So it's actually there's a whole chain that goes from the recognition of suffering kind of off into um, freedom. So I thought that was good. When I was doing the research for, the, for this, I found that and thought it was good. So now you have it. <laughs> yeah, that, um, you know, dependent arising, you know, that thing, the, the um, sort of the cycle of samsara or ignorance, con- everything conditioning itself in a chain that sort of suffering tends to breed more suffering, I would say, if it just is left untended. It just sort of goes around and around and gets worse or gets into more layers, um, beginning with ignorance, beginning with not looking at it. And the, and the, but the other one, um, the sort of path that leads kind of out of suffering, begins with the recognition of suffering. And that you sort of with that recognition, you develop faith in sort of the path or the Buddhist teachings or whatever it would be that um, the path that leads out of suffering but in a different, differently from the sort of ordinary way of dealing with it, so by aversion and changing it. So recognizing suffering, experiencing suffering, developing faith that the teaching is true, and then you get the benefits of the practice by putting it into practice, and you start to become more free based on that. So it's a cause and effect that starts with suffering and ends up in uh, happiness, I guess. Um, when, you, when I read the title of Suffering was a way to have some sort of traumatic experience, crisis, whatever it was, and in that, and in that suffering was the transformation to the liberalism. And if you, you know, starting with that, with that suffering, but that's why it was a friend.
That's true. It, That's been an important part of why I think this is a great path. Uh-huh. And then I boss sake from personal experience, the next step is you recognize the suffering and you have a recognition of the suffering. When you said suffering is your friend, that's the context right. that I saw it. So do you want to explain more about how, like, say, like, if you have some, I mean, it, it, it's sort of generally thought of that a lot of times a crisis leads to healing or something like that. But for you, since you've uh, seemed like you've experienced it, how would you describe that? Well, in, in the time that I've come here, and prior to the time I came here, I've had, I've had sort of a really good transformation. I found something that has uh, conquered parts of me that needed to be, that needed to be put, put away, uh-huh. if that's the way to say it. But um, what was the question? Well, do you feel like that, and how is it that those parts got conquered or put away, or um, well, how did first, that work? Well, the, fir- the first thing that happened was, was, it, was a series of what I call journal variants before I came here, and that was, uh, it started out with what goes around comes around, and then, then mm-hmm. it became a real wise thing and said, it isn't what happens to you in life, it's only how you react to it. That's right. And then I came here, and I, I listened to Michael and others, and I began to understand that this reaction, right. you know, this whole way that Buddhist and Buddha interpreted reaction and, and all of those reactions, plus the fact that we have these, I call them muffled tape loops that run in your head, you know, right. uh, red sauce is Italian, I mean, whatever it is. And those are the things that <laughs> You know, I mean, whatever they are. Uh, people that have beards and wear glasses are intellectuals. I mean, right. whatever... Right. I call it, you know, it's like shampoo when you go to the supermarket and it says shampoo and then it says shampoo with conditioner. Right. So right. it's like mind, then it's like mind with conditioner. So that's like where I kind of started. I kind of realized that I had these presuppositions, these things that were telling me uh, you can't right. do that. Well, you know, you can't because you'll leave your, your beliefs limited to right. do that. And that the liberation is coming. And then, of course, that's, that's really what it was for me. And I've done a lot of suffering. I've been very painful. I've done a lot of crying. And uh, I, I, I understand that um, I was in traffic coming here from him. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I just simply, you know, what has happened to me is I said, look, you're not going to move all these cars. As a matter right. of fact, you have the problem because you're here. Right. <laughs> right. right. And then I just said, be mindful. I mean, be mindful. That's sometimes right. what I tell myself when I when I meditate. And I think a good thing to think about is the fact that suffering is a friend because in suffering and in finding the root of it and, 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 and liberating yourself with it, that's where it can become a friend. Yeah. Thank you. Well, like in traffic the suffering is in wanting to be there already and you're not and you won't be. Right? Well, you know. I have type 2 diabetes. I have neuropathy. I, I, I need to get a chair when I get in here. See? So I had an agenda. Mm-hmm. I wanted, like, the mats are very hard for me. Right. And I came through a storm on the South Shore and all that other stuff. Um, first, um, people with glasses and beards are intellectual. <laughs> 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 My confusion is. I mean, the, the basis of, I mean, the, the goal of Buddhism, there is a goal, the paradox there is, is 
Yeah. Right. Well, there's a certain part of what he was saying that was kind of about dropping your agenda. That's true. And being able to drop your agenda. And where your agenda, like, starts to bring you suffering. Like, I think you, as long as you're driven to resolve your suffering, then uh, you're going to make efforts to do it. And then maybe you'll, you'll sort of figure it out. I think that's okay. You know, you kind of burn up the fuel, in a sense. And... You know, as they say in some of the more devotional paths, the yearning does all the work. I mean, it, it, that if it's there, it's not to get rid of it either. And but I think sometimes to experience like this, the drivenness itself. You know, what is it that is pushing you, and where are you going? And like, if it interferes with um, living your life now or enjoying your life now, like if it's always going to be that. Well, that's you know, right. You know, and I, I drove into enough brick walls that I thought, oh, driving isn't obviously working, so let's stop and try something else. Right. You know, it's, it won't make you into a vegetable overnight or anything. What? The drive is still there. Yeah. Beyond what it necessarily needs to be. Yeah, well, I think we all have excessive something or other, you know, or many <laughs> have excessive something or other. But I think that, you know, drive can be something great. But I, it, to be able to sort of, like, work with it, I think you have to let yourself feel what it is um, and just know it. And it, without the expectation that it's going to change or flip or turn into something else. But, I mean, sometimes the kinds of things that the gentleman here was saying, are like, you can sort of see that... Um, you know, for him, like, you know, that, that image of the carrot in, in front of the donkey or something like that, for him it was the chair, okay? So he's stuck in traffic and his chair is pulling him and he's stuck and he can't get the chair. And, of course, if you have an illness or something like that, it makes everything, I mean, I'm imagining this, but it, everything is more dire all of a sudden and it won't happen and uh, uh And it's like then you suddenly see, is this necessary? You know, like, where am I going with this? I'm stuck in traffic and my mind is over here. So there is a way that you can start to sort of just take your mind and kind of put it in the back seat. And um, I always like the image of, like, there's there's one guy with the carrot, you know, in front of him and being lashed by a whip. And then there's another guy who's, like, it's, it is a cartoon that his, his carrot has been converted into a limousine. And he's, kind of like, driving it like this, like... 
you know, sort of somehow getting into that whole mentality, I think, will be more relaxing. It's, that's a very theoretical thing that your brain kind of does. Like, you want an absolute answer that's going to fit all situations, and there's, you know... Yeah, well, I know, you know, you can just get kind of stuck in that and start to whir, because it's like, you're still going to be a probably driven, uncomfortably driven individual for a long time, and your drive will take you somewhere, you know, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. To want to be doing something, no. I mean, it's part of life. But... Um, is it destructive or, or are you just, you know, is it uncomfortable? Is it, um, is it ruining your day or, you know, <laughs> or is it making your day better? And, you know, I think that's for you to answer and you'll, you'll figure it out or you won't, you know, it's. Well, it's the moment, the moment. It's, it's like traffic. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's a perfect example. I've experienced many times. It's like, well, I'm stuck. Oh, wow, well, look at that. You know, these things I would have never noticed. There's a, like a type of acceptance to live with yourself, you know, as you are and without changing it and without applying any kind of like image of what it should be. Like you shouldn't be like that because you're sitting in a meditation center. It um, doesn't work. Right. Yeah, then compassion, right? I guess. And really you can't change that and really you can't see very clearly and I mean I think we all probably get into that place, you know, in lesser or greater ways and to think about people whose mental pain is so great that they kill themselves or they you know that's the way they find to they think they'll bring it to an end, that's so hard to imagine and yet it does happen and then so what does that tell you about being a human being you know how delicate we are kind of thing and I mean I think that when you're very when you're very immersed like that that is one of the good times to go to a movie (laughs) you know (laughs) to really kind of break it off if you can't you know like that is not a time to sort of turn toward it and get more intimate and cozy when it's kind of eating you alive Um, you know and sometimes you know, a distraction from your mind is good, or physical exercise, or something like that, or, you know, very practical kind of stuff. But also, you know, just being in it, like, sometimes you can just say, well, this is like a storm, this is like weather, you know, and just whatever little moments of some kind of recognition, like, even just saying, I'm completely overwhelmed. Um, And when other people get like that, you know, when 
you know, rage and whatever it is, you have no clarity and you're maybe in relationship in a situation or something like that. And the only thing you can say is, the only thing you have to offer is your bad feeling, you know, <laughs> and like hope that someone can, I was in, uh, I had this thing with the uh, Cambridge Somerville Hospital where I had this terrible migraine, like the worst headache of my life. And I called the um, night doctor on call and said, you know, like, 24-hour pharmacy. Can I've run out of my prescription. Can you do it? And he, he said, do you realize what time of night it is? And I, I said, yes, I do. And he said, like, guy, my advice to you is to, like, you know, wait till 8 in the morning. And I said, I want to chop my own head off. I'm sorry. You know, like, I can't do that. And, well, so I went to the emergency room. Fine. So then I wrote this, like, long, like, really mad letter, five pages of single space the next day. And I sent it to the CEO. And I said, well, it ended up in the customer service department, and she called me, and she said, and I said, you know, oh, man, you know, like a month had passed by the time she called me, and I said, I'm so sorry my letter was so, like, passionate, and she said, no, that's really good. She said, we we love this, because when you write in and you really have suffered at the hands of someone, you know, it was the humiliation and everything that had happened to me in the last 10 years at this hospital, you know, I was like, God, <laughs> you know, and she said, no, we, this is the kind of letter we really want to get, and I was like, Really? And I was like, God, thank you, you know, like someone received it in a way, like someone was able to sort of like hold it and not, like usually you're like, and somebody's like, you know, get away from me. So the experience of being received when I was confused and I felt unpleasant to myself and stuff, it was really kind of beautiful and to remember that. And like if you, if you haven't had the experience of that for yourself or from someone else, it, can, it gets more complicated. Like there isn't the space that you know that it is okay and that, that's hard. But I think, you know, with all things, it's just kind of a little, a little is a lot. Like if there's a little movement, it's a big movement. You know, just a little space or a little sense of healing, I think it's um, just taking a breath, you know. And people say you're going into something tough, like, can you remember to breathe? Just breathe, you know. And when you do remember to breathe, you realize it really is just a little ease. We read those lines from Hafiz. Yeah, if I can find them in my scribble. It's a much longer poem, but... Um, They're all much longer. What? They're all much longer. <laughs> yeah, they are. Uh, let's see. Okay, missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender. I could write it down for you if you want. Okay, I'll, I'll write it down for you. Yeah. It's kind of a little bit you got two lines and a half here, but it's almost in the Buddha. It says, when night is nigh, and you know not where you shall lay your head, fear not, worry not, every journey has its end. Hmm. So the poem about some travel, you know, night is nigh, and you know not where you lay your head, fear not, worry not. It's a little bit like that. It's how your worries can become. Well, yeah. You know. It's like me in traffic. Yeah. Suffering to wish for avoidance for it, 
which mindfulness and then later at some point as we were right. will solve. But in the first case, that sounds more similar to um, mystical Christianity, for example. Um, mm -hmm. I have a friend who suffered a lot and was in the 70s. And every time I try to summarize the positive to her and say something like suffering and an end to it, she says, stop trying to end it, suffer more. That's uh -huh. the path to compassion and to enlightenment, and she sees it. And I've recently been with someone in his 80s who suffered a lot, both physically and emotionally, never heard of any of the teachings of Buddhism. Is you know, just a, a westernized um, American, and he has a quality of peace, sweetness, and gentleness, which perhaps is not saint-like, but very similar to it. I mean, I think that sort of opening the heart mind to whatever you're experiencing is sort of that same type of path. I don't know about the suffer more part. Um, you know, that, that is, that's one of the little flavors that's in Christianity, just as the flavor of being a little dry is in Buddhism, and they each kind of have their own sort of deviations, but, you know, life doesn't have the label. There are, like, various, you know, sort of great, I believe that various great teachers have arisen, and they've all addressed something very similar at the heart of what human life is and human beings are. Um, so that in Buddhism, there is there are sort of two different ways of saying that suffering can be... Um, lead you to letting go and to seeing the coming and going of everything so that nothing kind of really is anything in any kind of final way and that with seeing that the mind opens to sort of see beyond um, sort of it, or and see into experience so that there's nothing to hang on to and then this clinging and aversion um, kind of disappears so that's where being able to enter the experience of suffering as suffering or incompleteness as incompleteness to not want life to be different from what it is. So if there's something missing in your heart, then and you look, it's as if you're looking into your suffering in that very direct and impartial way. You allow it to be as it is and you develop the capacity to be with it and it's, it's transformed by that. Um, you know, when you sort of think like the end of suffering, you think that um, it's somehow like everything's going to be wiped away and become a blank slate. Well, it's not like, you know, it's different from that. And it's not easy to imagine, you know, what an ongoing life without any suffering at all would be. Like, I think we have, I could talk about things in my mind that don't necessarily run me anymore and that I'm much happier as a result, a much more spacious kind of life and person, you know, certain ways I don't have to be anymore, you know, to. So I don't think that the paths are, completely separate or that if in you know you sort of go on the buddhist path um there's no compassion there's a lot of it in various um sort of further later developments in the theravadan thing um but there's compassion in the theravadan one too sort of going the meditation on compassion is to focus actually on the suffering aspect of yourself or of someone else and you wish for that may you be happy may you be freed from this pain and um I think a lot of Christians would find that very close to what they do.
versus the suffering that, for example, you mentioned like being in an abusive situation. Right. Some place where you actually need to take a specific action. Right. And like discerning between those two things so that you don't fall into what you wish passivity, you know, or this reactivity, like how to find that balance. And right. Another, no. No, it might be better. Yeah. And it might be, you know, it might be better. If, you know, if you are living, like, next to a uh, toxic waste dump, you should move away, or, do you know what I mean? <laughs> or, or, you know, things like, or if there's, some situation that's you have to figure like can you tolerate this is it really healthy is it productive is it growthful or or not it seems I, like decisions make it imply that you live in a future right because you're planning you're, you are imagining something you know in the future happening so like right how to actually do that in a way where you're not I don't know attaching Well, I think one of the things that helps me is to think that um, this may not be perfect. You know, like um, I can get very stressed out around I have to make the right decision. And it's like, no, I don't. (laughs) Or maybe I can't make the right decision. And part of what's difficult, too, is that you know you don't know what it'll really be like. Like you buy something that you think is great, like whatever car, you even spend a lot of money on it. And what are the things that you're going to really hate about this thing? You know, like they will, you'll know it within, or like I have the rule of like, I buy a pair of shoes. They're great in the store. The minute I have bought them and paid for them and I walk on them outside, they become uncomfortable. (laughs) You know, they stop working. I think, why do I have these? You know, I need another pair. But yeah, I think you can't. You just take a little bit of the edge off if you say like, okay, well, I really want this to work out, and maybe it won't, you know, or maybe it won't be perfect in some way, or maybe, you know, something else will happen that will make, you know, this be not the permanent solution to to this problem, but I'm making, I'm trying it, you know, I think that's all right. But we do have to live with past and future and the mind that decides, and, you know, it's just to kind of not burden uh, the whole situation with so much, um, you know, drama or something, you know. Um. Right. You just sort of feel like you've done your best and then you let go after that, I think. Can you say that again? I, d- I didn't completely understand it. You said some dealing with another person, you're saying? No. 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 I can draw a line. Yeah.
That's right. So the question is, how can you deal with the fear of the um, potential thing, like losing a relative? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. If you feel that you're afraid of losing them, even and you know you have some kind of irrational thing that's going on in your mind, and you're still you're worrying about them, kind of. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I yeah. On a day-to-day problems. Yeah. Can you can up. solve those things. I yeah, can but. Say no, you right. Know, because I don't want to make my life miserable. Yeah. I, Right. Control, that's right. That. So. Yeah, you don't know. Um, I mean, maybe you'll be hit by a car when you leave here, so, and they, then you won't have to worry about losing them. <laughs> Honestly, I'm sorry for that answer, but, but you, when, if you have a thought like that, that is very deeply moving and troubling, and yet you know that it's not real, sometimes you do have to attack it with something kind of bizarre like that. And it's, it is actually true. You don't know what will happen to that person. They may outlive you. Um, or, you know, and it's true that the fear of loss permeates all of our beautiful things. It's, uh, you know, say if you look at the United States, when you think of like, oh my God, you know, what are we setting up for the future here with some of these programs? Or, you know, like selfishness now is going to create pain later. We have a great situation. Why are we going to ruin it? Why don't we have, why don't we try to buy some friends instead of like fighting with everyone or, you know, everything that is up will come down. Everything that, not necessarily everything that's down will go up, but everything is changing all the time. And I think those anxieties are kind of a reflection of the way our minds understand it. But if it is getting to you, driving you crazy and taking over your life, then sometimes you really have to like focus on what's real. This person is alive, they're healthy, I'm here, this is a flower, this is a table, you know, do something to get your mind away from that track. It, you know. <laughs> it would also um, strike me that uh, you might somehow sit with it, sit with mm-hmm. the emotion of fear, right. experience it and see if it's something else or something That's true. deeper. Right. Yeah, that makes sense too. Yeah. That's right. A feeling is just a feeling. That's also true. It's not doesn't make it doesn't mean that it's true. So that when you see the nature of what the feeling is, um, sometimes it's some perspective is gained by that too. That's good. That's more like what the talk was than what I said. It's amazing that things function even, you know, when I think about, when I used to live in Jamaica Plain, does it, you know, do you guys know the Jamaica Way? Sure. And everyone's going so fast and they're so close to each other, it seems that people should be like dying there every day. And it's surprising that things hold together as, the, as much as they do. And 
he not only didn't come and visit me, but he called my place of business and spoke to one of my employees. And when I heard that he had called and come to town, I called my wife at home and I said, hi, what's going on? Anybody called today? I didn't want to tell her that he had been in town. Well, I was broken down. We've had an ongoing crisis. So I was at the point where I was taking this thing about this course on reaction with Michael Grady. And I felt pretty miserable. In fact, I just got a grip of the kind of pain I was feeling just a minute, you know, when I was there. And I said to myself, well, you know, you're not being tortured on a rack. Right. I mean, you know, this is not a physical thing that we have happening here. Right. You know, this is not that. But what is it that causes so much pain to you? You know, so I asked myself the question. Like, she could ask herself the question, you know, what would I lose if they're not here? What is it that I can... And you know what I found out? I realized that the reason I felt so bad was that I had this longing. First of all, I love my son. And I had this longing to have a warm, supportive relationship with him. And that it was the longing for this relationship that I had that was causing the pain because he didn't call. Right. Okay? Does that logically follow for people here? And that's, that was a big insight for me. Because I said to myself, in the words of Fat Domino, for those that are old enough to know it, what are you going to do if the well runs, the well runs dry? What right. are you going to do? Sit and cry? Right. You know? I mean, you realize that if the longing, so you're going to try to think about the longing and you're going to try to adjust it. And if the longing is causing the pain and you can't make it work any better by getting better skills, then that's the letting go. And now you have the freedom to not feel the pain. That's, that's right. my interpretation. That's good. And it doesn't always happen like right away. Like you might have to live with the longing or the fear for a while before you completely. It's taken a lot of patience you know, and the kindness. Sure. Like in the, you know, when I was in the traffic, I got a little agitated for a split second. But I wasn't me a year ago or three right. years ago, you know, cutting people off and running and getting all excited. I started breathing. I started meditating. I told myself, this is mindful practice. This is what it is. I didn't get upset. You know, I wanted to be here for the sitting. So I said, well, sit in the cab. <laughs> 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 I, went, I got it too late to come in, see? Uh -huh. <laughs> but, uh, that's how it kind of works for me. What I like about this is that I, I meet difficult people in business every day. And what I do is I, I tell myself, this is a good time to be real mindful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? And you, you tell yourself. Oh, you're very, you're very fun. That's <laughs> true. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> Discernment is another, I would say. Right. Right. Of course, yeah. I mean, I started when, with that myself, so I'm just saying, as a creative person, like, how do you kind of bring that in? Right. Well, like, catastrophizing, I think, for me, is one of the ones to cut off. You know, like, when you are, like, suddenly you're, you know, you think, well, if this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, it's like, finally you end up in a, you know, oh, no. Mm -hmm. And you may just be sitting in your car. 
and your mind has gone, you know, four years into the future when you have no money or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> like no job or whatever that, you know, and I think those are some very good, they're not really that creative if you look at it, it's kind of boring. <laughs> Right. You could, you could kind of direct it towards, well, it could be positive. Why isn't it ever positive? Why isn't it ever positive? Well, it sometimes is, but it's, you know, I think maybe there's a little survival evolutionary thing in there or something like that. Like, what could happen if, you know, like when, you know, if you were an undersea creature, what's going to be behind that rock? Is it going to eat me or is it not going to eat me? Well, maybe it's going to eat me, so I'm not going to go behind the rock. I mean, I think that's part of, you know, some really primitive thing that, we do. If I do this, then something bad might happen. I mean, you're, you can really hem yourself in with that stuff. Um, but for creativity, I think that um, a little bit what you were saying about, uh, as an uh, advice to her, is that when you can kind of just be with and allow the imaginary part of your life to be there and enrich your life, that's great. And then when it starts to sort of take a wrong way, it'll, you train yourself to sort of either to sort of bring it back or to see the kind of silliness and the emptiness of it. It's kind of like, what is my mind doing right now? This is like really nutty. I'm, been, I'm being taken for a very big ride right now, you know, and um, I'll just come back and, and see what's real, and it, this is not necessarily real, so. That's actually what happens to me when I sit. Yeah, uh -huh. In my mind. mind, you know, normally I walk around and I'm doing what if I've got to do that, and then what if I don't get that in And I sit here, Pretty soon I'm laughing at home. I'm, you know, my roommate's like, what are you doing now? I'm like, I'm meditating. <laughs> I'm laughing in five minutes. It's hilarious. I mean, it's just a pattern. Well, and it's very interesting how, like, sort of fruitful the mind can become when it's not supposed to be doing anything. You know, it sort of really does start to proliferate. There's that... Um, word called papancha proliferation it's a, you know the mind just does start to sort of the part of it that's kind of um, really sort of boring degrading humiliating and those things I think there's there are those sort of different means of kind of either surfing with it learning about it but the idea of sort of actually cutting something off uh, doesn't really work that well um, it's or sort of dispelling things or getting rid of stuff. Um, I think recognizing the nature of things, which is sort of what he's talking about. Like you kind of look into it, like what is this and what's driving this? And you might learn something that does kind of take it down. Or you might, you know, if there's a thought that's very repetitive, it's usually being driven by a feeling that wants to be expressed. You know, if something is really going around and around, you kind of like try to go into your body and feel like, what is the emotional quality of this? Um, what am I trying to get away from with this fantasy or something too, a lot of times? It's interesting because it seems like you're both connecting with it and also sort of slightly transforming. You know, it's both connecting and a little bit of 
creativity or displacement or something, like giving it a lot of attention for sure. Yeah. yeah. I try to be as clear as I, I could about the boundaries of it and the, the temperature. Uh, the color. Where it stopped and where it started and how it changed from moment to moment. Do you ever go back and read that? Yeah, thing? I went back a year, like, yeah, a year later and read it. How was that? Uh, it was very emotional, actually. Yeah. Because at the time, you know, when you talk about suffering and pain, uh, the suffering seemed to be the part that I, my mind added to the pain. Like, right. Am I going to be like this forever? Right. Am, am I going to be like this for the next 20 years? Uh, you know, that was the suffering I, I put on onto it, and the pain was something else. It's like when uh, you're in one of the sittings here and you're really restless, and then if sometimes the teachers will say, well, there's only one minute left in the sitting, and it's like, oh, great. Like, you know, it's so much easier. When you, or you look at your watch, it's like, oh, I'm almost over. Then it, That feeling of like indefinite extension is really hellish. Um, I think like when you get into real despair or something like that, there's almost always a thought that comes that it's always going to be like this. But it's also the same when you're really happy. Like you think, well, boy, I'm really on top of it. I'm really on top of it now. I've, I've really figured it out now, you know, that now I'll never really, you know, I'm not going to have another problem like the one I had yesterday. <laughs> well, you know, being able to be with yourself when you're sick is there's so much fear and so much kind of mental management that you have to do and like I think there is that thing of kind of coming into sort of saying like I had this uh, thing where I thought I had breast cancer a couple of years ago and I had to have surgery and everything and they end up looking in there and they didn't find anything but I lost some little pieces of myself you know or my body and stuff and you know it was pretty scary and the idea of death and sort of what did it mean to me, you know, like completely disappearing like myself and like not knowing anything anymore and not being around and like it was, it would come up and it would be like my hair would stand on end. It would be like, ha, ha, ha. And now I'm not quite so up. I can almost bring it back, kind of like what you were saying. I can almost make myself that scared if I think about put myself in that place again. But there's also a way like sometimes now I wake up and I think like this is not going to be, this body's going to die it's just going to die. And it's kind of a peculiarly interesting feeling. It's like, I know that this is going to not last, that this is going to shrivel up and disappear and I won't be around. It, but it doesn't scare me right now. I don't know if, you know, if I again had like something that my mind was relating to as being real, if I would go back into the hair-raising phase or if I kind of have digested it up to a point where it's like, okay, well, I am going to die. I really am. Um, and it's weird. Right. Well, thanks, everybody. I think this is probably enough. And I really like the, I like the part after the talk much better than the during giving the talk. Like, I really like um, sort of hearing from inside um, all of you. So thanks very much for that. Yes, I will write it.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.